Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, we're joined by Mesa Gifford, and we discuss his book, Fighting Evil, which takes a look at the controversial topic of volunteer fighters who joined the Kurds in the fight against ISIS. This conversation was recorded last year, so there may be a few points that feel a little dated and some points that may feel a little prescient in regards to volunteer fighters who've recently gone out to Ukraine to fight against Russian forces. Just before we begin, we now have a YouTube channel. I've been threatening it for a while and now we have it. So please follow the link below in the show notes and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And there are video versions of the podcast. So if you like to see a squiggly line with your interviews, you can now see a squiggly line on YouTube. If you wish to support the podcast, there are a few options for you. You can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show for £3 a month. We also have a merchandise store at Redbubble. We have cups, coasters, water bottles and tote bags all available on the Redbubble store. Also, if you enjoy this episode, please share it on social media among friends, family, colleagues, cohorts. And lastly, please leave a review on your podcast app. All reviews help the show get discovered by other people. Apple Podcasts in particular love reviews and they really help this show get featured on the app. So please do leave a review. All the links are available in the show notes below. Thank you so much for your support. And without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Mesa, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your sort of personal journey from graduate building a career in the banking sector and then you end up flying out and fighting the Islamic State? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I've often said it didn't come out of a clear blue sky Mm. in the sense that when I went to university, I studied politics and international relations. Um, I worked uh, in politics for a very brief period, both during university and afterwards, first for the Conservative Party, later for the um, Movement for Democratic Change in Zimbabwe, British Council in, um, in Ethiopia. But I sort of almost fell into the city in uh, sort of the early 2000s after graduation because of the recession. I uh, got into um, the international markets, primarily uh, foreign currency, and really from there, Uh, Because I was incredibly exposed to the news cycle, Mm. what was going on in the Middle East, what was moving the markets, what everyone was talking about. I've often said that I was actually more exposed than most people uh, to the horrors of ISIS and what was going on in the world, particularly bearing in mind my background and my interest in the subject. Mm. So uh, when I first heard, and I think everyone can appreciate this, the rise of ISIS in 2014, although maybe later we'll discuss the origins of ISIS and, and where the conflict originated. Yeah. Certainly, to my mind, the explosion of um, ISIS in, the early, uh, in early 2014 
really put them onto my conscience. It put them onto the world's uh, conscience. And um, from there, I discovered who was fighting in Syria, yeah. who was leading the charge against ISIS. And when they made an appeal for people to come out and help them, um, I heard the call. And uh, because of what they did in Kobani and on uh, Sinjar Mountain, and how horrified I was, um, it was an easy decision for me. Yeah. Are you able to tell us a little bit about the logistics of flying out from the UK and ending up on the sort of front line against ISIS? Well, yeah, it, it, people have said that uh, this conflict has been a very modern conflict. The use of social media was instrumental in, in Egypt and during the Arab Spring, Twitter as well, uh, in mobilizing popular support and getting people out onto the streets. But also in a more sinister way, it helped ISIS explode onto the world stage as well. It, something like 20,000 young men and women from around the world uh, joined ISIS. And um, they used propaganda to great effect. Um, a, a few people, if they remember back, certainly the ones that stay in my mind, are images of jihadis holding kittens. Yeah. Or, uh, a very famous one, which was on the Daily Mail and the Sun at the time. Five-star jihad, according to one jihadi, who was jumping into a swimming pool in Raqqa. And there was a great article written at the time, actually, uh, I forget who wrote it. Uh, it was called, um, the, Why Do Young Girls Go Out and Join the Islamic State? sex drugs and rock and roll mm. um and they and they talked a lot about the mentality and what drove young people to give up their life in the west to join isis yeah where i come in and where the other international volunteers come in is um similar in the sense that we were all exposed to the horrors of isis Kurds themselves um made a, a mass appeal to the world to help them and i suppose um i suppose a sense of internationalism uh, a sense of wanting to go out and do something, do something meaningful. Yeah. So I discovered them on Facebook. Again, that's the very modern way of recruiting. They had a web page called The Lions of Rojava, which was set up actually by an American volunteer who was one of the first to go out, a guy called Jordan Matson, And um, he started sharing images of men and women who were going out, volunteering with the Kurds, fighting back uh, with messages saying, look, the whole world needs to help us. And it was a very compelling draw. And when I discovered discovered it, and when I was uh, reading more about the Kurds, the YPG, their values, their secularism, um, what they want to do for the region, uh, women's rights, gay rights, it was incredibly refreshing. Uh, and the fact that they were leading the charge against ISIS just made me uh, want to go out and join myself. So they, I flew out to Suleymaniyah uh, just after Christmas 2014. I was met at Suleymaniyah Airport by a contact from the YPG. And from there, taken to a safe house and within 24 hours over the border into Syria. So uh, that's how my journey began. Wow. wow. What did that feel like when you first sort of, uh, stepped on the ground there? What was that like? Um, it was nerve wracking. I was incredibly determined. When you, the, the, the grim reality of flying into Iraq, into Suleymaniyah, being met by a contact, being driven across the border into Syria. And then actually at the time we had to cross a, a, a big river, which I presume is the uh, Tigris River, yeah. to get into northern Syria. And it was done in the middle of the night. And it was the first time I was exposed to the rivalries between the Peshmerga, the Iraqi Kurds, and the Syrian Kurds, the YPG. Uh, because at the border, they said, well, we're going to have to go in the middle of the night. We're going to have to cross silently. If we're caught, we're in trouble. And I said, ISIS? No, 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 Peshmerga. And I was like, what? Peshmerga are Kurds. How, why would they arrest me? Why would they uh, hurt, try and hurt me? It's like, no, you'll be <laughs> wake up call. This conflict is a lot more difficult, a lot more dangerous than perhaps you've realized. So um, it was a real learning curve for me. So I went out wanting to help, 
uh, wanting to stand in solidarity with people. And that first six months in country uh, was a transformative experience. Oh, bad. Can you talk to us a bit about those groups who were fighting ISIS, and in particular, obviously, the YPG is the group you join. There's also the YPJ. Can you kind of give us a sort of dummy's guide to those groups and that kind of conflict? Sure. So you can almost say that the conflict is split into two halves. Mm. You have the conflict against ISIS. Actually, you could almost say it's been split into three almost. But let's, let's start at the very beginning in terms of Syria. Syria obviously was a popular uprising. The energy, the explosion of human energy during the Arab Spring caused a lot of young Syrians to rise up against the dictator Assad. Assad did everything he could to release fanatics from jail, to encourage um, fanatics to take up arms against him and to show himself as the best of a bad bunch. That's obviously not the only reason um, Islamic terrorism rose up in Syria and and came to dominate the FSA and other groups, rebel groups. Mm. But that's the beginning. And um, then you saw the explosion of ISIS. So in terms of Syria, two conflicts started to emerge very early on. The fight against Assad by the FSA, FSA, uh, the Free Syrian Army, supported by the Turks, by the Saudis, um, by, to a limited extent, Britain and America, which slowly decreased in time due to concerns about radicalization. And then you also saw the rise of ISIS and the predominant pers- uh, group that was fighting them in the early days was the YPG and the YPJ. Yeah. And uh, of course, there was fighting between the FSA and ISIS and the ISIS and the regime, particularly around places like Palmyra. However, um, it was really the SDF that led the charge. So there was two conflicts emerged in Syria against the regime and against ISIS. ISIS was split, the fight against ISIS in Iraq and the uh, fight against ISIS in Syria. So I've already mentioned the fight against ISIS by the SDF in Syria, but in Iraq, it was the Iraqi government and the Peshmerga. Mm. And the Peshmerga are the Iraqi Kurds. Um, I knew plenty or thought I did about the Peshmerga because I'm a, very much a millennial. I grew up during the so-called war on terror. Um, I first discovered uh, the Iraqi Kurds when uh, they were fighting against Saddam and the terrible persecution that they faced as well. But I knew very little about the Kurds in Syria, uh, where there's something like three million of them. And the the Kurds in Syria had their backs against the wall. When in early 2014, when ISIS did that 100 days of explosive growth, where they got within sort of 80 kilometers of Baghdad, they seized Lujah, they seized Raqqa and and Mosul, of course, the second largest city in Iraq incredibly quickly. Um, it was the Iraqi Kurds that stopped them at Kobani. And Kobani became a, a real sort of the Stalingrad of Syria at the time. Uh, and it was a real motivating force for myself and many other volunteers to go out and help. So the picture is quite complicated. And it gets even more complicated when you start talking about which groups, back, which countries, I should say, or which nation states backs which groups. Mm. But uh, the good thing is, well, when I first arrived, the YPG was very much alone. And the good thing is, as time progressed, the coalition led by the United States, Britain, France, etc., really began to invest in the SDF. Um, and that's how we've seen the stunning success against ISIS and ultimately the territorial defeat of ISIS. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about the kind of the people who, uh, the volunteers who went out to join the YPG and other groups in that fight against ISIS? Well, a real diverse group. Um, I've often said it's quite a broad church. Yeah. I think I mentioned in my book that, uh, and I certainly believe this to be true, and I've, I've spoken about it a lot, is that the international volunteers changed over time. In the early days, it was very much sort of Anglosphere dominated. A lot of Americans, a lot of Brits, a lot of Aussies. Mm. Um, they tended to be a lot of former military veterans. Um, I would even go as far as to say something like 80% of the early volunteers were, had some form of military experience. 
Uh, and those that didn't were primarily motivated by humanism, a sense of um, a sense of adventure. Sure, I think all of them were sent. Uh, um, were motivated by a sense of adventure. And then obviously you've got the ten percent, which are the plain old crazies, people who shouldn't have really been there in the first place, and many reasons why they would go. If you're recruiting online, there's a good reason why um, the wrong sort of person would go. Uh, in the long, in the longer term, the international volunteers changed a lot. It became much more of an international flavour. A lot more Germans came, a lot more leftists and anarchists, and so by the end, it became, as I said, a really truly broad church, all united in the sense that we all supported the Kurds and we all supported the fight against ISIS, and that's what united us, I suppose. I noticed uh, one of the things you observed in your book was how a lot of the ex-military people kind of couldn't cope with the. Um, is it the tactics? I don't know the correct way to put it, but couldn't cope with the situation. It was kind of a bit different to the way they were expecting things to go. Well, absolutely. They're professional soldiers. There's a good reason for that. And they're joining a non-professional militia, particularly in the early days where it was even more rudimentary, not only the equipment, but the tactics and the support you received from the coalition. So uh, when I arrived in 2014, the YPG was losing. Everyone was losing against ISIS. The talk on everyone's lips was, would ISIS end up in Syria, uh, excuse me, in, in Turkey, in Lebanon, in Jordan? How far is this so-called caliphate going to grow? And, and what impact is it going to have on the world? 20,000 people from around the world flooded into the country. Thousands more remained in Britain, America and elsewhere uh, and could have conducted terrible attacks on, on our soil. So it was a real explosion of international terrorism uh, in 2014. Mm. So uh, the Kurds, they believe in democratic confederalism. They believe in democracy and equality. They're split into two different groups in those early days, the YPG and the YPJ, YPJ being the female version and YPG being the male. And um, I mean, yeah, the international volunteers went out to support uh, the Kurds against ISIS. And it's very difficult to articulate how much changed in that time period. Uh, and it was a privilege for myself to actually witness it as well, because I was there in 2015, 16 and 17. So I saw the complete evolution of the Kurdish uh, forces in Syria. And I, I also sort of read in your book, you kind of compared the situation a little bit like the tactics to being a bit like World War One with the mass death toll and things like that. Yeah. And that's again, the, the, the professional military guys, as I said, in the, particularly in the early days, they couldn't get over the fact that there was no helicopter to evacuate them. That there was no uh, medical help uh, as well. Uh, the equip there was no body armor. You would be asked to do things that would risk your life. Literally running at the enemy because you've got to cross the ground. You've got to attack in the middle of the night or whatever. And uh, so very rudimentary tactics. Um, and uh, as professional soldiers, they found that very difficult. I think that's where your passion comes in. The only reason you're going to stay and fight is if you truly believe in what you're doing. And as I said. When you witness what the Kurds believe and what they were doing in the fight against ISIS, you would find yourself going home pretty quickly if you didn't truly believe. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's certainly true. That makes sense. What was the sort of Kurdish view of the Westerners who joined them? Well, very positive. The, the Kurds were a, a real mixed bag. Some people were incredibly touched. You see volunteers from Britain, America, France risking their lives, giving up everything to fight for them. And eventually begin to die for them because something like 50 international volunteers were killed, uh, eight of them British over the years. Yeah, the Kurds were incredibly supportive. Um, they needed the support that we gave them, which in many people view uh, the sort of propaganda contribution of the international volunteers as being far more than the physical help. 
something like 12,000 SDF fighters, Kurds, Arabs and Christians died fighting against ISIS under the banner of the SDF. 50 international volunteers did. Um, if you were to count, let's say 400, uh, it might be more, it might be, well, it's probably a little bit more, but say 400 international volunteers fought on the front line mm. of, a, of something like nearly 100,000 people. It's a, it was, when they write the history books of Syria and Iraq and they talk about the international volunteers, there's going to be an entire chapter on the internationals that joined ISIS. They did horrendous things from Jihadi John decapitating people to uh, being appointed to senior commanders of ISIS mm. and, and committing the most atrocious crimes, of course. And then there'll be a, hopefully a paragraph or two about the international volunteers that joined the SDF mm. um, and the Kurds. Uh, but I think the difference is it gave a lot of people hope in Syria at the time. Yeah. And um, uh, it certainly contributed to awareness of what the Kurds were fighting for in those early years. Yeah. What is the um, Turkey stance on the YPG and the kind of Kurdish cause? Because I know that's a, a bit of a hot topic at the moment. Turkey's been always quite consistent on this point. They consider the YPG and the YPJ to be the same as the PKK, which is the Kurdistan's Workers' Party. Uh, which is a terror group not only in Turkey, but actually in many countries in the West. I think uh, that's a difficult point, uh, and it's quite a hazy one. I am quite clear, though, that there is a distinction between the PKK and the YPG. I'm not just talking from my own uh, safety here, because I would go to jail <laughs> if it was. Yeah. Um, but it's been accepted, certainly in Britain and America, that the YPG and the YPJ are separate from the PKK. That's why they allied themselves with them, and that's why they, together they created the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces. Um, I think the YPG would be the first to say that it is certainly true that PKK cadres uh, and uh, um, supporters left Candle Mountain, left the PKK areas, took off their uniforms and joined the, uh, the YPG and the YPJ in those early days. Mm. And that's common sense because the Kurdish people, are, they're the largest uh, people without their own state. There's something like 50 million Kurds with their own language, their own history, their own culture. They're separated into four different countries, Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. Yeah. Four of the most oppressive regimes in the Middle East uh, and that have done the most brutal and terrible things from genocides to, uh, to, uh, to rape to cultural destruction uh, of the Kurds and refusal to ad identify them as Kurds. Turkey themselves uh, described Kurds for many years as mountain Turks. They refused to allow them to have their own language, their own history, their own culture call their children Kurdish names. So the resistance to these oppressive regimes has always, although the Kurds have separated themselves into different groups, their family bonds uh, from, uh, and tribal bonds, etc., have still united these groups. It's quite normal in Kurdish families to have a son in the PKK, but also a son in the Peshmerga and to have uh, another one living in Iran. Mm. So uh, the fact that thousands in the early days in 2014, when uh, Rojava was being completely overrun. Thousands of young Syrian recruits in the PKK and uh, other uh, PKK recruits that aren't affiliated to Syria coming into Syria to join the YPG is unsurprising. But did they completely assimilate the YPG? Is there, is there no distinction between the YPG and the YPJ and the PKK? I don't believe that to be true. Britain and America doesn't, but Turkey has failed to accept that. And um, the frustrating thing, if I were to talk about Turkey for a second, mm. uh, Turkey. Really, obviously, it's got a large Kurdish minority in, uh, in its country. They are dead against any rights uh, for and any equality within their system for Kurds because they are terrified uh, of Kurdish autonomy and Kurdish independence. 
So they will veto just about everything. They will fight anything that gives any form of identity to Kurds, particularly that's on their southern border, right below them. They resisted Kurdish autonomy after the invasion in 2003 against Saddam. In fact, they, they threatened to invade the Peshmerga territory then. Mm. America was quite blunt and quite determined to say to them, back off. This has got nothing to do with you, etc. And it's just a damn shame that America and Britain didn't do the same uh, with Turkey in Syria. That instead, they appeased Erdogan, the dictator, the man who's destroying his own country and has much to say about Turkish politics, but who's uh, done plenty there. And they failed to um, rein him in. And the result of that is a lot more violence. The invasion of Afrin, the invasion of northern Syria by Turkish troops. Yeah. So it's a, a big failure by successive presidents, particularly President Trump. Yeah. Just briefly, could you tell us a little bit about Rojava? Because it comes up a lot and um, it'd be interesting to sort of know its significance because there might be some members of the audience who are not so familiar with that. Yeah, sure. So Rojava is the Kurdish name for uh, northeastern Syria. Uh, it's now called uh, officially by the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, as northeastern, the NES, the northeastern Syria, uh, the autonomous region. And really, in the early days of the conflict, um, Assad began to lose grip of his country as protests uh, because of the Arab Spring sprang up just about everywhere, from Raqqa to, uh, to Aleppo, etc., and in and around uh, the Kurdish regions of Kobani in the northeast uh, and uh, in other places, I can't remember, uh, Derek, etc., mm. his troops actually pulled out and allowed Kurds to step forward and to assume security, the responsibility of security, etc. That's actually often made people accuse the Kurds of working with Assad. When in reality, although they have worked with Assad and they have actually fought Assad as well, mm, mm. they've always have been in a very difficult position whereby they've got the they they've between a rock and a hard place of the dictator regime on one hand, the terrorists on the other, and them in the middle trying to create institutions for themselves to protect themselves uh, and everything else. So um, the Kurds very much uh, stood forward to protect themselves. So when we saw that explosion of ISIS uh, and the overrunning of everyone's territory, including Kurdish uh, territory, uh, it really was only the YPG that was fighting, YPG, YPJ that were fighting back. And the Americans, there was a lot of talk in the West about how much help should we give to the Kurds. And many people were saying, let them go. Let Kobani be taken. It's, there's no military significance to it. In the end, thankfully, sanity wor worked through and they bombed in support of the, of the Kurds. And that's really what turned the tide. So with growing confidence, the Kurds, the Americans, sorry, began supporting the Kurds. And that ultimately led to the creation of the SDF, the fight back against ISIS, the recruitment of internationals and, and everything else that came. And the rest is history, as it were. Yeah. Can you talk to us a bit about the sort of training and things like that you went through and sort of um, how you were treated and did it meet expectations? Um, yes, uh, I, um, I mean, I arrived um, on New Year's Day 2015 in Syria. I was in Iraq just for a few days. Um, I w met other international volunteers. One of the first international volunteers I met did not meet expectations. Uh, he was listed in the book as a guy called David, uh, actually what's his real name, uh, an American guy. And he was clearly not supposed to be there. Let's say a little bit childish, a little bit uh, naive and everything else. So uh, there was me expecting to turn up and to be amongst a load of uh, veterans of the war in Iraq and in Afghanistan, <laughs> people that I would have to prove myself to yeah. and everything else. And instead, I was confronted by the reality, which is that all kinds of people turned up. But very swiftly, other people arrived, uh, some with incredible experience. Uh, one, uh, a guy called uh, Nathan, uh, was a former uh, French foreign legionnaire. He fought in Afghanistan. He was in for eight years and in two rep, which is their sort of 
parachute division. And um, he was an incredibly efficient and effective fighter and soldier. And he really did help us acclimatize to the environment. He taught but not only us, but also the Kurds themselves. We were all sent to a Kurdish training academy. But it was very rudimentary. And actually, in those early days, this would later change in time. But in the early days, the Kurds um, had no idea how to treat international volunteers. Uh, they didn't know whether they should even send them to the front line to fight. Yeah. What implication would that have on their image in the world by having Western volunteers on the front line? And even worse than that, if they started dying, um, how much training did we need as well? As I said, in the early days, 80% of them were former veterans. So they resisted quite determinedly. Uh, any local training, and that they just wanted to go to the front line. Everyone was trigger happy and desperate to fight ISIS. So uh, we were only given one week in those early days in the training academy, uh, which was literally just to uh, get used to Soviet-era weaponry, uh, which we'd be using in the fight against ISIS. In time, it would change. International volunteers came in greater numbers. It was organized more efficiently. A special training academy was created for foreigners, which meant that you had to stay for at least a month and you had to prove yourself in that month that you were capable on the front line. And if you weren't capable, you were either sent home or you were sent to a position which was, um, yeah, well, that would be more appropriate for your skill set. Yeah, yeah. In terms of uh, the YPG versus ISIS, um, what kind of equipment did the YPG have and, and how did that stand up to what ISIS were armed with? Well, in the early days, it was incredibly one-sided. During that explosion of growth, the um, Islamic State had acquired a huge amount of um, American-made weaponry from the Iraqi and Syrian armies. Uh, something like 600 uh, Humvees were taken in Mosul. Uh, something like 30 major artillery pieces, tanks, uh, thousands of rifles, enough to build a literal army with. Mm. And they did, and, and they built an army. They captured uh, a huge amount of oil resources as well, which meant that they were became overnight the richest terrorist group uh, in history. They were earning something like several million dollars every single day. And the Kurds themselves, they resisted ISIS in their genes. They took their rusty AKs that maybe belonged to their grandfather, they stuffed their pockets with bullets, and they ran out onto the streets to resist these tens of thousands of fighters, many of them who had been fighting, let's say, the Americans in post-invasion Iraq for many years, who were trained fighters uh, with incredibly good equipment. Yeah. It began to change. Um, the Americans began to bomb in support of the Kurds in Kobani. They saw Kobani liberated with very little effort, and they realized, wow, we have a force here that is incredibly capable, not because they're incredibly well-trained or incredibly well-equipped, just because they have the ideological heart and the passion to actually resist and fight back. ISIS were incredibly effective against the conscript armies of Syria and Iraq. Shias stuck in, in a Sunni-majority city in Mosul with very little training, with no military leadership, with all the equipment and all, with all the right gear, but certainly no idea of what they were facing. And um, they ran. And, and when, they, when you run against ISIS, they capture you and you die. Yeah. The Kurds in Syria knew exactly what they were fighting for. They had their wives and their children and their homes behind them. So um, uh, with that passion and gradually with more and more American support from artillery strikes to uh, airstrikes to military equipment, the scoreboard began to even out. And eventually by the end in 2017, when I was fighting in Raqqa, it was a complete reversal. ISIS had 4,000, 5,000 fighters in Raqqa when I was fighting there. The Kurds had 15,000. They had uh, 24-hour airstrike capability, the ability to call airstrikes themselves. We all had incredibly good 
or reasonable equipment. Um, uh, so, yeah, it changed over time, like everything else. Yeah. And what were ISIS sort of like as a fighting force to go against? Their strength lay in their fanaticism. Um, the fact that they would literally blow themselves up to begin with to sow havoc and confusion amongst the enemy and then swarm you with dozens of fighters, fighters who can cover ground incredibly quickly. And as I said, it's very easy to overrun a conscript position or a position of people who, are, who don't really know how to use their firearms effectively. Mm. Um, and the moment they're in and amongst you, the moment they've surrounded you, and the moment you, um, your courage breaks and you throw your rifle down and you say, please don't shoot me, I give up, please, please stop, um, they have, will have zero mercy for you. Mm. So that's something that every international volunteer, and I think a lot, uh, mo- most Kurds on the ground, accepted. It was very common for Kurds to be carrying a bullet in their top pocket, or often they would have a way of attaching the bullet to their rifle. Um, and the implication was clear. If, if we're surrounded by ISIS, we're shooting ourselves uh, or we'll die fighting. Yeah. I, I actually did the same thing. Um, it's something that I, don't, I didn't often talk about at the time. I can talk more openly now, but I would often carry a grenade with me. Uh, I can remember that being covered in the press and being horrified by it because the idea of blowing yourself up is alien to a lot of people in the West. It's actually something that terrorists do. And a lot of naive people thought it was unpleasant that I slept with a grenade, but it was actually a common sense because uh, I, I didn't, and again, I'm talking openly here. I, I always thought I never had the courage to pull the trigger on myself. And the idea of having a fuse of five seconds in a grenade, pulling that pin, and then trying to charge the enemy, that final act of defiance, I knew I felt would carry me over the edge, would allow me to <laughs> die. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, turning the gun on myself and that decision to end your life is something that uh, was very hard for me to do. And that's the point, is that these fanatics, they thought that they were going to die and go to heaven. Me as an atheist, <laughs> I have a family at home. I've got a life in Britain. I've got everything mm. to live for. I wasn't fighting to die. I was fighting because I truly believed in wanting, in wanting to help the, the Kurds. And I was fighting because I, I cared. But I, I also had the naivety of thinking to myself, well, at least I'll come out. Of, I could come out of this alive. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the effectiveness of ISIS was they're willing to die, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thinking about, like, if you were captured by ISIS, I mean, I, I dread to think what you would have gone through. So I can kind of understand wanting to sleep with a hand grenade as an alternative. Yeah, well, it's um, you, the death was certain. And a death in the most barbaric and brutal way was certain. There was no way they would trade you back. The propaganda value of capturing a Westerner who publicly exposes, um, exposes um, democracy, equality, secularism, gay rights, there's me on TV saying, look, this is what I'm fighting for. This is what the Kurds are fighting for. The idea of being caught by ISIS and then paraded on TV, burnt in a cage, drowned, shot, whatever, that would be my fate, undoubtedly. Um, so as I said, I, uh, you did fight knowing that that was your fate if you were overrun. So you came to the point where you, particularly in Raqqa, after years of fighting, you just didn't give a shit anymore. You fought, uh, not wanting to die, um, but totally prepared to, basically, I suppose. And sleeping with a grenade as that final act of defiance is to ensure that you weren't badly injured um, and then captured by ISIS to make absolutely certain that that wouldn't happen. Yeah, definitely. 
very difficult, very difficult to talk about. Again, this was something that um, was discussed around the campfire with international, other international volunteers, but it's something you never discuss with your family, for example. And, and let's not forget that international volunteers were confronted in reality with this decision. Uh, a, a British man called Ryan Locke was overrun by ISIS fighters and he shot and killed himself when he was, when he was down to his last few rounds. Oh, so yeah. uh, Ryan Locke was only 21, 22 years old, a braver man than me, a more capable man than me. Because as I said, I've, I'd never thought that I would ever have that ability to take my own life in those last minutes mm. uh, with a firearm, I mean. So uh, it doesn't bear thinking about, does it? No, it's a horrible, horrible situation to be in, isn't it? Mm. Can you give us a kind of like a dummy's guide to ISIS from what you experienced and what you saw? Yeah, well, it's um, first of all, there's a couple of things uh, I've often said is, um, well, like the Goldilocks zone around the sun, uh, the conditions in Syria and Iraq for a group like ISIS to emerge were just just right, just perfect. Conflict, division, ethnic division, uh, poverty, etc. If you look to the wider cause of the growth of terrorism in the last sort of 30 years, it it changed after the Cold War. I mean, terrorism uh, during the Cold War was uh, typically financed from where you sat on the uh, on the Iron Curtain. Um, It was nation state terrorism. It was it was the IRA in Ireland. Uh, There there was ethnic division. There was ethnic terrorism. But the, the, the sudden growth of international terrorism really came to a fore in the early 2000s. And that's where we we now got the so-called war on terror. In terms of the origin of ISIS, uh, I've often said that they're like they've got many different fathers. Um, there's many different ways that they've developed over time. The growth of Al Qaeda after um, the fight, the Mujahideen's fight against the Russians in the 1980s in Afghanistan, and America's support of the Mujahideen um, with weapons. A lot of people have accused America of, of, of directly creating Al Qaeda, or at least contributing to its rise then. Um, I don't necessarily think that's true. Uh, obviously, the, in a limited way, it, it certainly was true. But after the, uh, after, in the 1980s and the early 90s, after the uh, failure of the Soviet invasion of uh, Afghanistan, and you saw those thousands of foreign jihadis all going together to Afghanistan, there they created their own networks. They swapped numbers. They, uh, they swapped email addresses <laughs> and all the, all the rest of it. And uh, you, then you started to see clusters around the world of terrorist cells uh, exploited under the banner of al-Qaeda and other groups. Uh, that happened primarily because you had a, uh, you had a war between the, uh, the Soviets and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And you saw clusters and you saw people networking and creating terrorists. And then obviously you had Zakawi uh, in those early days in Afghanistan going to Iraq just before the uh, US invasion and creating the insurgency, the Islamic insurgency there. And from that, you saw the growth of the so-called Islamic State of Iraq. And then because of the attack, the the failure uh, of leadership in Syria and the explosion of the civil war and the descent into violence there, you saw jihadis in uh, Iraq going over into uh, Syria. Again, people will say that, oh, because of the American invasion of Iraq, that explosion of terrorism, the, the recruitment and everything else, again, contributed to the rise of Al-Qaeda and then finally ISIS. Um, so it's all kind of true, but it's, it, it's a very lazy way uh, to look at international relations and to look at the origins of ISIS by simply saying, oh, it was the Americans created terrorism. Now they're reaping the just rewards and or it was a complete failure. Certainly, there's a lot of naivety uh, in America and a lot of naivety amongst politicians in general that do contribute to violence and do contribute to international terrorism. 
But um, I, I don't like to victim blame and I don't like to say that uh, it's the West's fault that we are now blighted by international terrorism. It's because there is a violent strain of Islamic militarism and fanaticism that has been there from the, uh, for a thousand years. The rise of ISIS in Syria, I've often compared to the rise of the Mahdi in Sudan. The destruction of uh, General Hicks's column and the, and the destruction of these, those Egyptian conscripts in, in Sudan um, mirrored the early destruction of the conscripts in Syria and Iraq. The final invasion of the Sudan and the defeat of the Mahdi by professional soldiers and by Britain, etc. later, um, again, mirrored the destruction of ISIS later. So, uh, and that was 100 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, this is a problem that we've always really faced. And the modern world, whether it's the internet, the, the, the shrinking of the world because of global communications, has made this problem so much more worse. And now, this, the next big thing is, with the proliferation of drones, uh, with the creation of Google Earth and the ability to uh, do your own intelligence work online, you can just be a, a reasonably educated person and put together a huge amount of data on organizations, on people, on everything else. And uh, it's just made terrorism incredibly easy. And uh, the, the chance of more violence has become more uncertain in this world. And with the growth of, um, uh, what are they called again, where you could possibly build weapons, uh, the machines that build things. Oh, 3D printing, 3D printing. 3D printing, et cetera. Again, where, where will that take us in the future? Mm. So, um, and the proliferation of drones, uh, for example. I saw the Islamic State take drones that, for, that cost $1,500, a thousand bucks, something that you and I could afford quite easily and, quite, and with very, no effort whatsoever, attach bombs to them and then drop them on us. We suffered in the first month of Raqqa, we lost like four or five guys to injuries from drones. And I got bombed sometimes four or five times a day for months in Raqqa by drones. It was only the, the Americans then recognized the threat of drones and actually brought in some sort of thing that probably blocked the transmitter between these civilian drones and their handlers, which made them sort of automatically land possibly. But overnight, the Americans did something and the whole thing stopped. We had a problem for months and months and it ended overnight. This is, in a sense, why getting international support in, in many respects is so helpful, because America do have that technology to stop these things. Yeah, well, it's, um, I think that the nature of war generally is, is going to completely change. The Americans have learned a lot of lessons in Syria. The creation of the SDF has, has proved to Americans that um, the, the, the days of deploying mass troops in conflict zones, particularly conflict zones where it, there's a problem perhaps with uh, peacemaking or peacebuilding, and it's not a massive uh, geopolitics. It's not something that you are willing to expend thousands of people on uh, to, and billions of your taxpayers' money on. The days of uh, allowing thousands of British soldiers to die is now just become unacceptable to the British public. So by uh, utilizing local forces in Syria, by supporting them and using drones and aircraft and all the rest of it, they were able to defeat the Islamic State quite easily. And one of the, th the technology advances that, they, that we had over time in Syria was that uh, we had civilian phones and civilian iPads with little apps on, which were, we could secretly download, which, were, which we could then use to call airstrikes. So it meant that you could, with very little training, have a, a young kid in Syria call an airstrike from a F-16 jet that costs 100 million quid onto a terrorist group. And that sort of shows you a little bit where technology is going to take us. The recent military review in the UK has created a uh, so-called rangers group, and they want these rangers to go to 
work with local people to train them and then possibly to be deployed alongside them. Um, and possibly with the view that the longer term view that the conflicts of the future um, will revolve around utilizing local forces to a much closer degree. Mm. Because as I said, the SDF lost 12,000 fighters in Syria against ISIS. Only, and something like three US servicemen died in the war against ISIS, which is a terror group with 50,000 fighters and yeah. billions of dollars. So I think it's the future. Well, also, it kind of strategically, because the biggest problem with both Iraq and Afghanistan is America, well, the West, you know, the Allies had to be- almost become an occupational force, which leads to a lot of negative publicity, mm-hmm. if I put it politely, but, you know, <laughs> which then ends up being propaganda for groups like ISIS. Yeah, the, the fundamental mistake of Iraq uh, was that it was top-down peacebuilding. They invaded a country to remove a dictator, um, a country that um, uh, was artificially created after the First World War, uh, which had very dis- different groups and uh, ethnic groups and, and religious groups in the country. And they decided to implant American-style democracy on the, on the country. And they disbanded the army, big mistake, mm. created a US-funded army, et cetera, et cetera. So um, for the first time in Syria, it was bottom-up peace building. It was very much listening to local people and supporting them in, in, in achieving much wider goals. And it was fundamentally and incredibly successful. And then you look at Iraq, where it just wasn't successful. It was, it was the terrible failures were made. So, um, yeah, I think that the past 20 years, the Americans have learned a tremendous lesson, almost the hard way, in both Syria and Iraq. And the future now, um, uh, the, the threat of terrorism it hasn't gone away. It's only got worse uh, and will dec- and also get worse because of rising inequality in the world, uh, global warming, etc. So um, uh, the threats have increased and they will have to utilize new technology and new ideas to win the day and to protect themselves. Yeah. Mesa, one thing I wanted to ask you a lot about was what are your thoughts on the debates around ISIS today, especially about, especially around the debates about returnees? Yeah, well, ISIS, their priorities changed. Um, and you actually saw them getting the excuses in early. Um, so as, as early as sort of 2016, ISIS began to do subtle things. So for example, they changed the name of their propaganda arm from, uh, I think it was Debak, to something else. Uh, Debak um, is a village, I believe, in northern Syria, where, according to the Quran, to uh, some sort of Islamic tradition, the chosen people will defeat the crusader armies once more, and they will establish a global caliphate. Mm. That was very much part of their propaganda in the early days. They wanted people to join them. They wanted to incite fear. They wanted to prove to the world that they really were the true Islamic states. They adopted these traditions and brutalized them by putting their own twisted versions of them out there. But then they started to realize that actually we're losing, that we're never going to uh, win any battles. We're not going to take Rome and all the rest of it. So uh, the propaganda began to shift from this, from the amazing success of ISIS and how lovely life under the Islamic State is, to really saying that the seed has been planted and this is a much more generational fight rather than a more immediate one. And that actually helps you, helps explain the rise of ISIS in the first place. Al-Qaeda has always had that message of saying, look, one day we will have a global caliphate. ISIS said, we have the global caliphate now. It's right here. It's in Syria and Iraq. Come join us. So that was the, that's what created much of their early success. But as I said, those excuses began to filter out. And then by the end, um, uh, it completely changed. And they were defeated in Raqqa. They, their humiliating defeat 
in Bagus, where you saw them crawling out of their mud holes, injured, starving, uh, and all the rest of it. And Khalida and many of, the, many of these international volunteers, many of them British, suddenly saying, uh, where just a few years ago, they were on TV arrogantly saying that they were going to take Buckingham Palace, they were going to destroy the West. Suddenly they were saying, oh, I came, came here as a humanitarian. I, uh, I sat and played Sega Mega Drive for three years. I didn't do any fighting. The arrogance was gone and they were broken force. So the future of ISIS really is to prove that they exist and that they will endure. They lost a lot of territory. Hundreds of thousands of people died in the conflict. Tens of thousands of the fighters died. And um, what I think you'll see in the West, particularly in vulnerable countries, you saw it in India very soon after the defeat of ISIS, a terrible bombing uh, in a church in India. And that helps to prove to the world we exist. We're we're still a threat. We're still out there. Mm. And much more than that, I think they're going to start taking... um, involving themselves in in conflict zones in places where there is terrible humanitarian crises, uh, Africa being a very key part of their future plan. You've seen the terrible violence in Mozambique, in, in the Congo, in Nigeria, in Somalia, um, all over Africa because of the poverty, because of the inequality, because of the threat of climate change, etc. It is a breeding ground for terrorism. And, and I've often, what you'll see me write about now if you go onto my Twitter and other things, it's not about Iraq and Syria. Iraq and Syria, as far as I'm concerned, we need to be supporting local institutions and rebuilding homes and schools and, and not allowing ISIS to thrive again. But in terms of combating ISIS, still fund the SDF, but we should be fighting them in Mozambique. We should be hitting them hard in, in Somalia. So um, it's, they're going to shift around and it's going to be like those, that game in, um, that you see at fairs where those things pop up and you have a, a whack-a-mole and whack them. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be like that. <laughs> I, I was chatting with a former CIA officer a few interviews ago and she was talking about, was talking about the war on terror and, um, and how North Africa was actually of almost greater concern than the Middle East, but obviously the Middle East got all the attention. So maybe what's going on now is because they had, you know, these security services haven't been paying as much attention to Africa as they should have done. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, well, they, they, the Islamic State sh- took shirt, uh, a major city in northern Libya. They were eventually defeated by local forces. That didn't get much coverage in the, in the West. Um, you've got terrible insurgency in the Sinai Peninsula in, uh, in Egypt. The taking down of that, I think it was a Russian jet a few years ago, proves that that's a, an ongoing problem. Um, there, there's always going to be terrorism in the so-called Islamic world, which is, let's say, northern Africa and the, in the traditional parts of the Middle East. I'm actually more concerned uh, about sub-Saharan Africa, um, as I said, with Mozambique, uh, Somalia, Kenya, uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, these are countries that have been exploited. Yeah. They are uh, artificially created countries, which uh, very little national unity, um, very low levels of, um, of integration between communities and also uh, education. And it's just the, it's the fertile ground that terrorists use to exploit. It's, it will stunt the development of Africa. It will stunt the ability for Africa to truly, to, to, for these countries to unite and to educate their populace and to move forward into the 21st century as progressive and democratic countries. If they can barely keep themselves together, it's, it's going to be a much harder thing to do. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Back on the sort of debate about ISIS returnees for a moment, I've noticed that women ISIS members tend to be treated more as victims, especially in the uh, certain parts of the press. What did you learn about the actions of many of the female ISIS members? Well, the female ISIS members were often as bad as the men, or if not worse. There's terrible stories. If people were to care to listen 
in the in the West, these so-called humanitarian uh, and human rights lawyers who have taken up the cause of these young women, um, if they were to care to listen to the true victims, who were the Yazidis, who saw 6,000 of their young girls, some as young as three years old, captured by ISIS, um, the stories were that um, women would often hold down um, young Yazidi girls. They, they burnt them with kettles and tortured them in the most unspeakable ways over the years. And they've shown very little remorse for the actions of their husbands. Uh, they, they actively also took part in the fighting and in the control of Syria and Iraq. Uh, groups like the Hizbah, the um, so-called religious police of the so-called Islamic State, a lot, many girls and many women from the West joined that group, including uh, there's an accusation against Shamima Begum that she joined uh, the Hizbah as well, that she was seen sewing uh, suicide vests onto suicide bombers. God. And um, the, the discourse that these people were young people, that they were naive, that they shouldn't have got involved, that we should be investing in rehabilitating them and bringing them back into society. Well, as far as I'm concerned, punishment has to come first, that we've got victims in Syria and Iraq, a, a, a brutalized country. And uh, we have the perpetrators in our custody. The first thing that we need to do is make sure that they go on trial and go to jail for their crimes. Mm. In the long term, rehabilitate them. In the long term, try and help them. But the, in the first instance, justice has to come first. And I think that's the huge mistake of the, the so-called human rights groups is that they have lost sight of who the real victims are. And um, they are just opposed. Anything that... Uh, that victim blames, or what's the word, that says, oh, this is somehow our fault. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, somebody once called it imperial narcissism, mm. uh, <laughs> where it always has to be something that's our fault mm. and, and that we've got to somehow, um, you know, do something about it, which is interesting. Well, it's the same mentality that says that um, we, we caused the rise of ISIS, uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all the rest of it. Like, um, oh, if we weren't in the Middle East, there would be no terrorism. It's like, well, that's, first of all, that's an incredibly naive thing to say. Um, but it's, uh, it's a very lazy way of looking at the world. And if, uh, if, you, if Britain was much more of a socialist, oh, what's the word? Uh, if Britain was, a, was a, the utopia that we've got in our heads, then young girls wouldn't feel the need to go out and join ISIS. It's like, well, that's very easy to say, but there, a crime has been committed. And um, uh, some of us are focused on justice. And some of us really want to see a solution uh, to this crisis. And I find it very frustrating because you, you see a lot of attacks on the prevent strategy and on the security services in the UK that actually are very effective in keeping us safe mm. and actually mm. are very open and very tolerant and very inclusive of what people's views are. And, it's, and the, the narrative in, in Britain has been hijacked by these groups, groups like CAGE and MEND, um, they say they claim to speak for the uh, Muslim community in Britain, um, but the narrative they have is incredibly divisive, um, blaming Britain for the for for these cri for this long term crisis. So it's uh, it fills me with a bit of despair, and I think there's a lot more work and soul searching in Britain to come up with a discussion, a, a national discussion about uh, integration and about uh, the rise of terrorism and, and everything else, because I, I truly don't believe the conversation has been very mature so far. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. One question about the, the law. Do we have, do you think, appropriate laws in place to deal with ISIS returnees? Um, I don't, not really. Um, I, I think that um, some of the laws are, are fit for purpose. Um, others are not. I don't think we pre prepared properly for the return of ISIS fighters and their supporters. Mm. 
the, the, the fact that the very little evidence can be acquired in a war zone, um, that we're not going to be shipping over dozens, if not hundreds of uh, witnesses in trials, whether they're sitting in refugee camps or, or everything else into Britain to give evidence. Are we going to send police officers out to Syria and Iraq where there's an ongoing uh, conflict to seek evidence? Uh, so instead, what I f- truly fear is that many of these people will get a slap on the wrist and be out on the street again, mm. which, which causes a huge amount of problems. Um, one being security, the fact that we allowed people like um, the Libyan bo- bomber from Manchester to return from Libya mm. and for him to set off a bomb in, in the, the in the stadium Manchester there. Arena, the, the yeah. arena. Um, it, it's just so there's, secu- there's a security aspect. There's also a, the long term fact that it just encourages people to go out and go abroad to commit acts of violence. If they think that there is no way that they're going to be prosecuted or there's no repercussions for their actions. It, it, there's there's many things that I could talk about now um, to say that this is not a good idea and we need to have legislation that is very particular. For example, there should be minimum sentences for those that join ISIS um, or terror groups that commit uh, terrible crimes. You should be, uh, it's guilt by association, as it yeah. were. If I joined the Nazi party and, and I joined the SS as a British man and the SS committed uh, the genocide against the Jews, I came back to Britain and said, oh, I was in the SS, but I wasn't actually involved in the concentration camps. I was just doing something else. I, I would expect Britain at the time and Britain of today to say, no, your excuse isn't good enough. Ten years in jail. Yeah. Uh, instead, we're getting the max four, five years is what I expect. Shimon Begum and others out in three. Um, and then back into education, possibly live the fruits of British life, uh, the, the, the life that they rejected and spat on and fought against. They'll enjoy but the thousands of uh, refugees in Syria and Iraq and Turkey and other countries, they've saw their lives ripped apart, their children raped, their husbands shot in ditches. Mm. They're living a life sentence of horror and hardship while people like Shimon Begum come back to Britain and enjoy the fruits of British life. So it's, it's, very, it's galling and very, very upsetting. Yeah, people like to talk use the word entitlement a lot, and that that's the word that comes to mind for some of these returnees. You go and wreck another country and come back, and effectively uh, can pick up where you left off back here. Absolutely. Yeah, it's appalling. It's appalling. Um, one other thing as well, I've seen there was a newspaper article a few years back with Jim Matthews, who was a YPG member, and he had he's had a few run-ins with the police, and he mentions them in his book. Do you think is are YPG returnees easier people for the police to to target? I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think um, so. When I said some legislation is fit for purpose, I think the legislation in terms of returning fighters. Hmm. So it's it's basically everything's done on a case by case basis. Um, at the end of the day, when I went to Syria, I joined a group that wasn't listed as a terror group in, in Britain. I also it was also an ally of, of Britain. Uh, British soldiers served alongside Kurdish fighters. And much more, more importantly, this is, this is something, this is how I escaped being caught under uh, ter- terrorism laws in the UK, because some of the terrorism laws are quite vague. So they say, if you go abroad, going abroad to fight is not illegal in itself, in those words. But if you go abroad, if you get military training, and if you have an ideological reason to go out and fight, that's illegal. You could, be, you could come under anti-terrorism laws. I didn't fight for any uh, local ideology in, in thing. I wasn't Kurdish myself. I didn't. Mm. I wasn't a true believer in democratic confederalism and uh, local views on how the world works. I'm a British man who believes in democracy, secular values, uh, rights for people, uh, whether they're gay or whether they're uh, whatever ethnic group they are. So the idea that I might be tried for my beliefs or tried for joining a terror group, which I'm not. I didn't join a terror group, and also a level of common sense was involved as well. Like. 
if one in 10 international volunteers who joined ISIS come back to the UK and find themselves in court, what are the optics of actually putting a guy called Mesa Gifford who fought against ISIS? And actually, if you listen to him, he comes across as, I hope, as quite a reasonable <laughs> person, or yeah. at least someone that you think isn't going to blow up a school or attack someone or whatever. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, I was very lucky. I, I wouldn't uh, say that going abroad, I wouldn't recommend anyone go abroad because you can face trial. But the good news is there is a level of common sense. Um, I was I was stopped under se- uh, Schedule 7 of the Anti-Terrorism Act, or Section 7, and uh, which was the right not to remain silent. And because I was so open, because I gave across my, my mobile phone, my laptop, everything else, mm. there was no confusion about who I was and what I was doing and what, what I was capable of, etc. Instead, I was an open book, and uh, they made the assessment that I was not a risk to the UK and was allowed to walk free. Uh, Jim Matthews, he was um, arrested, and there was an attempted prosecution. In the early days, um, this realization came in time. There was confusion about why international volunteers were joining the Kurds. Uh, They were concerned about what level of training we had. So there were a few test cases by the CPS Mm. uh, on international volunteers. It wasn't just Jim. It was a few others that were arrested as well. I think the the police have now taken the view that it's not even worth going there in terms of international volunteers between a certain time period. International volunteers that are currently in Syria, they risk arrest because of the now intervention of Turkey and Turkey being an ally of the United Kingdom. Uh, their position is a little bit more shaky than mine now. So uh, that's something that they will have to take into account for themselves. It's an ongoing thing, and it's changed over time. Uh, me personally, I haven't broken the law. I, have, I, I haven't been arrested. And as far as I know now, I'm not uh, in, of interest to anyone. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, that's good. Um, I was wanted to talk to you about the kind of contrast in numbers of people who joined ISIS versus people who joined the YPG and the fight against ISIS, because they're quite sobering figures, really. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it, it just shows you about the pull of ISIS and um, uh, the fact that um, they're, use, they're very capable use of media and of te- technology to get their message out to the world. And what's horrifying is that so many young people believed it and, and actually took, uh, accepted it as the truth and wanted to go out and, and fight for it. I find it disturbing that a lot of people escaped prosecution because they actually wanted to go out and were stopped by the British police. They either had their passport taken in the UK or they were stopped while they got to Turkey. They came back to the UK and they weren't prosecuted for trying to join ISIS. Um, as far as I was concerned, they should, be, they should face very severe penalties. There was one case of a young man whose uh, father was a politician in the UK, a local councillor. He w- tried to enter Syria to join one of the rebel groups. I won't say which one. But uh, he tried to cross the border. He was arrested, turned back. Uh, I, as far as I'm aware, he wasn't uh, prosecuted. His father's still a counsellor. Uh, he described his young son as uh, a very foolish boy, but he's got a, his life ahead of him. Yeah. It, it, it really frustrates me that uh, we weren't strict enough on people who were trying to go out. And we're certainly not going to be strict enough with people coming back. Something like a thousand young British men joined ISIS. A few dozen, like a hundred, joined the YPG to fight against ISIS, uh, and it, it, those are sobering figures. But that's the, the sad reality of life is that uh, ISIS were incredibly effective at what they did. But uh, let's also be enthused. Um, although I'm blowing my own trumpet to some degree here, but let's also be enthused that young men and women were also willing to go out and fight against ISIS. That the sense of internationalism, that internationalism that fueled the volunteers that fought against the fascists in Spain, that encourage young Americans to join the REF before the first, uh, before the mm. Americans were officially in the Second World War. 
that sense of internationalism, of, of duty and of wanting to help people exists, uh, which I, I think is a good thing. Yeah, I find it was interesting as well, because to me, there are parallels, and you've mentioned this in your book, so the parallels with the people who joined the fight against fascism in Spain in the 30s, like George Orwell. And obviously, the left were very pro that. And I just noticed a lot of conversations on the left these days barely even talk about the YPG. And they, they seem to also spend more time kind of talking about the victimhood of ISIS members. And it's just very strange. Yeah, well, it's, it's, that, that's a problem that the left has had for a very long time. Almost they're, they're the tankies of the left. They're the, 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 the those that apologize for Stalin and for everything else. They're the people who that know what they hate. They hate capitalism. They hate the West. They hate America. They hate Britain. So um, they're willing to support anyone that hates those things. Um, and they're willing to not uh, draw too much attention to, the, to the, the, the contradictions in their support for certain groups. It, yeah, I, David Graeber was a friend of mine. He sadly died now. He's a leftist um, writer and intellectual. Um, he uh, wrote a very good article in The Guardian a few years ago about his despair at the left, the, the lack of internationalism amongst leftists. Mm. Let's not forget, and I'm not, I won't consider myself a leftist, but there were many leftists who were my friends who went out to join uh, the fight against ISIS. The left, the left was represented in Syria and Iraq. Many brave men yeah. who were anarchists and communists and others died in the YPG for the Kurds against ISIS. So um, uh, I don't mean to be too, yeah, too disparaging of the left here, but I do think that um, too, many, too much of the left is pro-Assad, is, is uh, <laughs> the dictator, the man who gasses his own people because he's, uh, he resists America and resists the West and is a, uh, an indigenous and local politician, um, the fact that um, the, the West supports the Kurds means that Kurds are somehow stooges of uh, the West and the, the tools of the West. And it's a very frustrating conversation uh, to go through. Mm. So um, it's something that I've always avoided. And um, yeah. yeah, it seemed to hit its popular point with, with Jeremy Corbyn's time in the Labour Party and there's this picture of him with Assad I, I, I'm not sure exactly when that picture was taken it looks quite awkward but <laughs> well, Jeremy Corbyn frustrates me because he had, a, he had this amazing opportunity because Jeremy Corbyn is a protest politician he's, he's the, he's the, uh, the man who he, he'll take any cause any cause in the world over the last 40, 50, 40 years whenever he started in Parliament mm. um, he, he loves a cause mm. and one of the causes and I don't mean to be too disparaging because he has helped the Kurds but he is one of, is the Kurdish issue is he's helped the Kurds the Kurds love him because he's a great guy because the Kurds weren't listened to in the West and the fact that Jeremy Corbyn did listen to them and did attend their protests and did write for them and support them was an amazing thing the frustrating thing with Jeremy Corbyn is he then rose to the top of the Labour Party. A, a Kurdish group in Syria has risen up, pushed out Assad through nonviolence, has resisted the Islamic State, established a socialist society built on progressive values and all the rest of it in the heart of the Middle East. And he could have, uh, and he had, Jeremy Corbyn had this terrible optics. He had this terrible uh, reputation of being anti-establishment and anti-military and, uh, and didn't have a very effective foreign policy. And do you trust this guy with a nuclear button? Do you trust him negotiating with Putin? Mm. So he had all these problems and he had to get across that actually he was a capable politician. And here in the heart of the Middle East was an issue that could have worked so well for him that he could actually stand in front of uh, David Cameron 
and say to him, you are not supporting local people in Syria. It's time we fought back against ISIS. It's time we supported our troops, helped local people in fighting back. He could have done all of that, but didn't. Um, and uh, proved not to be a particularly good ally of the Kurds in Syria, as far as I'm concerned. So um, he missed a trick there. He did. He missed a massive trick, which is a big failure of him and uh, a big failure of the left, because it just because even when confronted with a uh, with a brilliant thing, with with a tool to beat the conservatives around the head with, to prove that the that the left has a great way of restoring restoring order in the world and fighting back against terrorism and all the rest of it. They failed. They refused to even pick up that that, that mantle. So, um, yeah, I don't have much faith in him or others who subscribe to that politics. No, no, I agree. And it, it's sort of this weird um, pacifism to all ends kind of mentality. And I've, I, you know, I've got friends who, who had this as well. And, and sometimes, sometimes force, unfortunately, is necessary. And that was what you've described as a perfect opportunity for, you know, British American forces to actually do some real good in the world. Absolutely, and and they just drop the ball. Yeah, so strange. But there we go. Um, what do you think will be the legacy of in, the international fighters who join the YPG? Well, I, I'd hope people uh, would realise, as I said before, that internationalism, internationalism is there. Internationalism isn't dead. That uh, people are willing to go out and help. Yeah, uh, that's why I don't want future laws to uh, because there's a law in Australia that says. You're not allowed to go fight in a foreign conflict zone. Full stop. Bang. It's against the law. You'll go to jail. It's very strictly enforced. Uh, there has been calls for that to happen. And that would criminalize George Orwell. It would criminalize me. It would criminalize uh, future efforts to help people in the world. And I think that's a terrible mistake. Um, we don't know the direction of the, the world. And by doing that, we're not solving a problem. We need people to realize that uh, the world is uh, becoming a lot more dangerous yeah. and that we need people, uh, people have the right to go out and support um, local people in their struggles, whether it's against nation states or terrorist groups or whatever. And you're seeing uh, some legislation in Britain and other parts of the world criminalizing individual behaviors. So, for example, it's not just people like me who want to go out and support fighters and actually go on the front line. They're criminalizing journalists. So a journalist going abroad and spending some time with what some people consider a terrorist group and actually interviewing people and getting to the heart of a story, will that be criminalized in the future? Mm. Takes us into a very dangerous territory. And what we really need to do is we need to make sure that, um, that we don't introduce legislation for legislation's sake. We need to make sure legislation is targeted against the bad guys, the people who genuinely want to hurt us. Um, and uh, that's why, as I said before, that I believe that uh, the British legal system, when it comes to me, is uh, and and what I did in Syria was incredibly effective. They could have arrested me, they, which would have blighted my life. I would never go back to America again. I would never. Uh, I would never. There's certain jobs I would never be able to get again um, if if I had been arrested or uh, been dragged through the court system. But instead, they stopped me under Section Seven, which is not just doesn't appear in my criminal record. Uh, instead, give me the right to answer questions fairly and openly. And I do, and I do so, and and, it, and they make the view that I'm not a bad guy, and they let me off. Mm. So that's the frustrating thing with parts of uh, possibly the left and these so-called NGOs and organisations that are anti-prevent and other things, uh, is that they don't realise that um, I had an interaction with the British security services, one that was incredibly positive, that kept me out of jail, that made sure my life that I could do something abroad, I could be properly investigated, and then removed from suspicion and allowed to walk free. If, if that wasn't an option, um, the only other option is arrest and possible prosecution and a, and, a, and a thorough investigation to make sure 
that um, no criminal activity has taken place. Now, I don't want to put myself through that and my family through that. So uh, that's where legislation has been effective. So um, the future is difficult. And I think that the conversation today needs to be about um, what we've learned over the last five years and actually make um, have a proper discussion about an open and transparent one and come up with the right conclusions. That sounds wise. Before we wrap up, what is the situation with the Kurds and the YPG today? Um, so the Kurds um, have uh, defeated ISIS from a territorial perspective. They haven't defeated and destroyed the ideology that underpins ISIS. They've still got a lot of assets in the region, uh, terrorist cells, which are well-funded, well-armed. Um, and there is a long-term battle against them that the West, as far as I'm concerned, will have to keep supporting. It's not, it's not an expensive effort. It's not something that's consuming a huge amount of resources from Britain and America. So um, it, that shows the success of the support of the SDF and, uh, and the program over the last uh, five years, six years. But um, when it comes to the community that the Kurds have tried to create in Syria over the last few years, um, they don't receive enough support, although what they have done is very inspiring. They have built schools, they've built universities, um, they've, um, they've got a constitution that guarantees people's liberties and rights. Um, they have, uh, they're progressive, even more progressive than the West in many ways. For example, uh, the fact that they have co-chairs. So they, and they don't just have a president of the autonomous region. They have co-presidents, uh, and both a ma- male and a female. So e- everyone is truly represented. Um, and uh, for example, I believe the male is uh, a Christian and the woman's a Muslim, and, um, for example. Mm. So although it's imperfect, although I'm not, I'm not going to beat around the bush and say it's... Um, it's what they're doing is completely amazing and it's it's breathtaking and all the rest of it it is a lifetime away from what we what governance and good governance we're seeing in damascus and what the fsa are doing in uh, aleppo and other regions of afrin uh, afrin and other places so um what we see in syria hopefully is a template for what a future decentralized syria might look like uh one that uh represents um communities whether they're religious or ethnic uh, that include women, that, that guarantee uh, rights. And really, uh, what we should see now, hopefully, is uh, everyone coming together around the negotiating table in Geneva and coming up with a solution to this crisis. My frustration is that over the last few years, the, state, the major states of the world, and the re- both international and regional, have used Syria like a chewing toy, like a blanket with four dogs in each corner, ripping that blanket to pieces, and each with their own um, end goal, whether it's Russia, America, Turkey, etc. And um, uh, what we need to do now is we need to realise the realities on the ground that Assad has defeated the, uh, the rebels in many different ways in Aleppo and other places. Um, and with Russian support, he's guaranteed his place at the, the table. The rebels now have been supported by Turkey and they've cleaved out a big part of Syria, which they too will have to uh, be recognized and included in the table. But very importantly, the Kurds and the people of northeastern Syria also need to be included at the table. And in the past, they've been vetoed by countries like Turkey who are refusing to deal with them. Uh, and But the future has to be one of unity, of uh, discussion and transparency. And um, uh, the Kurds have said themselves they are prepared for peace as they are prepared for war and just as prepared. So um, they are keen to negotiate, they're, t- they're keen to compromise um, and I would hope that that's the future, but let's wait and see. Well, Mesa, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? Well, I'm. Uh, they can follow me on social media. I'm most active on Twitter. 
Um, I've got a book out called Fighting Evil, which you can get on Amazon. Uh, that gives you a little bit of background information about me and what I did in Syria. And I think really, if you want to discuss more about what's going on in eastern Syria, there are other groups called the Rojava uh, Information Center, I believe it's called, the RIC. They're also on Twitter. Um, and people share a lot of information about what's going on on the ground. Um, and there are some fantastic books out there. Uh, one uh, by Joby Warwick called Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS. That'll go into some more detail about um, ISIS and its origins. But yeah, I think um, learning about the Kurds, learning about um, what they fought for in Syria would be a very fruitful way for to understand what the future of Syria might look like. So yeah, definitely do that. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining me today. It's been great chatting with you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 